Good morning, Harari. Good afternoon, Almaty. And good evening, Kuala Lumpur. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Emmanuel Macron's trip to Africa and a breakthrough between two longtime foes. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, as always, Ethan. You? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. Uh, so, John, let's fly away together here for a second. Uh, we're going to head across Central Africa aboard Air France. Imagine this. There are croissants, there's onion soup, there's crepes, the whole nine yards, whatever you fancy. Uh, who are we flying with? Uh, I didn't know where you were going with that until you said croissants. It's a very vivid picture. It reminds <laughs> me that we shouldn't record when I'm hungry. Um, but, but we're on board here with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, who spent last week visiting uh, Gabon, Angola, the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo. Not all of those were French colonies. Angola was Portuguese and, and the DRC was Belgian. But all of them are very important to French strategic interests uh, or commercial interests, which is why he visited. Um, the I guess the agenda wasn't particularly interesting in and of itself. Often these agendas aren't. But there, there was something sort of vaguely noteworthy, which was Macron did a, uh, a one forest summon in Gabon alongside a bunch of leaders with uh, from countries with big forests, I suppose. Um, and he promised to contribute $53 million to the cause to protect forests, which, you know, is a lot for a startup like us, but it's a, a, a drop in the bucket for the world's seventh richest country. Aside from that, the agenda was what you'd expect. Meetings with heads of state, shaking hands, photo ops, you know, the usual. Well, we're, we're pretty averse to covering those sorts of meetings, right? I think especially especially you as our resident cynical diplomat. Uh, <laughs> so why are we talking about this at all? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I've still got uh, fond memories or maybe not so fond memories of managing visits <laughs> like that. So I, I that perhaps explains my cynicism or my my lack of interest in those kinds of meetings. But but this trip was a little bit different because Macron had, uh, we billed it as a chance to reset relations with Africa after a disastrous few years, well, almost a decade of French policy there. Uh, the Monday before he left, which is about 10 days ago now, uh, he delivered a speech at the presidential palace in Paris, a bit of a tongue twister, where he outlined a new sort of more balanced approach to French policy. He said, and I'm quoting, Africa isn't anyone's backyard, even less so a continent where Europeans and French should dictate its framework for development. He promised to shrink France's military footprint and mapped out a new security arrangement where French military bases across the continent would be co-administered with local personnel and the host government. So there was a bit of meat on the bones there. What's driving this reset? Uh, I mean, let's be honest, countries rarely volunteer to leave places they view as strategically important. Right. Um, And I think the answer is in your question. It's not really voluntary. No matter how much Macron wants to make it seem that way, right? Uh, last year, the, the military governments of Mali and Burkina Faso, both former French colonies, uh, they expelled French troops after nearly a decade of cooperation on an anti-terrorism campaign in the northern region of Africa known as the Sahel. French troops also later left the Central African Republic as well. You know, some analysts have been saying that this campaign was to uh, was to France what like the war in Afghanistan was to the US, even if France contributed only a tiny fraction of the forces that the US had in its 20-year war in Afghanistan. Uh, the 
the fact is that they were, you know, French forces were expelled and it's a source of pretty big embarrassment for Macron, as I guess the Afghanistan situation was for Biden. Um, the French have a fairly long and troubled history, of course, in, in Africa. Um, you know, those direct interventions, colonialism, let's call it what it is or what it was, those those direct interventions now are far more rare than they used to be. But anti-French sentiment is still pr- runs pretty high across the continent. Um, you know, this was on evidence during his trip. Uh, at every stop along Macron's journey in Africa, he, he, he met with protesters or protesters met him, I should say. Um, and in the DRC, some even chanted asking Macron to help Mr. Putin, which I, I suspect is pretty confronting for many Europeans to hear. You, you said to help Mr. Putin? Yeah, right. Like it, that's pretty shocking. I, I mean, in one sense, it's expected, but in another, it's it's somewhat confronting. Russia's footprint in Africa has grown mightily over the past uh, over the past few years, uh, mostly thanks to the mercenaries from the now infamous Wagner Group. Um, they've been the ones that have kind of been filling the vacuum left by the French troops have been leaving over the last six months to a year. Um, these guys are, you know, exceptionally brutal. And experts say they won't do much to dislodge the extremist groups that the French were fighting. But lots of African leaders love the Wagner group because they help the leaders stay in power. Uh, So Macron, I think, clearly views the reset with Africa as part of a larger battle for global influence between the West and Russia and China in Africa. Question that has yet to be answered is whose pitch is better? Grim prospects for Macron. I imagine he'll be as excited to uh, reboard the plane back to Paris as we are. Today's show is sponsored by Power Corridor. Power Corridor is the intersection of Wall Street and D.C. where money collides with power. It's where elections are decided, corporate dynasties are born or they die, and the decisions that shape the future of the United States are made. Written by Leah McGrath Goodman, an investigative journalist with a long track record of disruptive journalism, and brought to you by The Daily Upside, Power Corridor is your key to understanding the people and forces shaping our world. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So next up, John, we have the settlement of a major dispute between South Korea and Japan. What's the story? Yeah, this is a fascinating one, Ethan. Um, It's the story of a decades-old dispute that actually dates back, well, back to when the Korean Peninsula was a Japanese colony uh, from 1910 to 1945, That was a particularly brutal time for a lot of Koreans, both in the North and the South. They were killed, jailed, worked in labor camps uh, under the Imperial Japanese Army. The South Korean government is obviously pretty upset by this legacy and have demanded and often received over the last, you know, decades, uh, reparations from the Japanese government and the certain companies that were involved in the abuses as well. In 2015, for example, Japan contributed around $7 million to a fund to compensate uh, some women, a a group of about a few dozen women, who were forced into sexual slavery by the Japanese Imperial Army during that time. The most recent case started in 2018 when the South Korean Supreme Court ruled that Japanese companies had to compensate Koreans who were forced to work in military factories during the time. Those companies say the Japanese companies, that is, say that their debts were paid back in 1965 uh, when Japan paid South Korea $800 million in exchange for diplomatic recognition. 
And for the last several years, this case has kind of gone nowhere. Neither side was willing to budge. But that changed on Monday when South Korea agreed it would compensate the 15 forced labor victims. I think some people will be surprised to learn about this. I mean, Japan and South Korea are two extremely high-tech, wealthy, liberal democracies in a pretty volatile neighborhood. They seem to me like natural allies. How deep is this tension between them? Yeah, it's it's a story that isn't covered much, the, the relations between South Korea and Japan, but the, the tension is deep. It runs very deep. I should say, just as a way of an aside, none of the countries in North Asia really are natural allies. There's just too much violent history, too many ethnic divisions. So I think what we're seeing is more partnerships and collaborations that spring up based on shared interests and challenges from time to time. So, for example, in 2019, after the South Korean court ruling that we were just talking about, Japan was so incensed that it removed South Korea from a list of trusted export destinations and limited exports of critical minerals. South Korea responded in kind, of course. Uh, The rhetorical warfare as well has been vicious at times. Uh, The late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his uh, former South Korean counterpart Moon Jae-in, they were, let's just, like, bitter enemies. You know, there's no other way of framing that, really. Abe consistently downplayed Japan's imperial era, which obviously is a source of a lot of hurt for Koreans. And he called other Japanese prime ministers idiots if they just wanted to discuss that issue. Uh, and on the other side, public opinion suggests that it's, uh, you know, uh, 21% of South Koreans held a favorable opinion of Japan. So not many South Koreans think Japan is is good. So, you know, it's a, it's a very deep rift, really. So from, from what you're saying, you know, the rift is, is deep. Uh, the relations are shallow. There have been deals in the past that haven't done much to improve long-term relations. Does this seem like the deal that could change that? I mean, it's hard to know, but it might. There's still anger about how the deal played out. South Korea's opposition is furious and some of the victims are refusing to accept the payment. But it seems to me that both sides are starting or you know, uh, do appreciate that the relationship between the two countries is too important right now to suffer from these old wounds. Not to say they're not important, but that, you know, there are bigger things at play right now. Uh, Since 2015, when the last major reparations deal was signed between the two countries, the environment in East Asia has completely changed. North Korea's missile program has become a lot bigger. And China has, as we all know, become a lot bolder. You know, South Korea and Japan know that they need to show strength to deal with those threats. The historical grievance are important. Um, They shouldn't be so important that, you know, they derail cooperation on the bigger, more pressing issues. Uh, And, you know, (laughs) you know, one country that's probably the most excited about this, you get one guess. Bolivia. Uh, No, um, (laughs) the United States. (laughs) Not Bolivia. Close. Yeah. Uh, The United States (laughs) is is bang on. Right. The right hemisphere. Yeah. Well, is Bolivia in the northern hemisphere? The Western. Western. Okay. Excuse me. (laughs) But yeah, no, the United States is right. Um, As you said, South Korea and Japan are super wealthy. They're liberal democracies in a region where there aren't very many of those. Um, and to counter China, the U.S. wants all of them singing on the same tune. So it's it's very good news for the State Department and uh, the U.S. more generally. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Members of Georgia's parliament brawled during a debate on Monday 
over a bill requiring foreign-funded NGOs and media outlets to register as foreign influence agents. Opponents say the law is designed to derail Georgia's EU bid, which 80% of Georgians support. The Colombian government negotiated the release over the weekend of 88 hostages that were taken during a protest against oil company Emerald Energy. The protesters are demanding the company pay compensation for its environmental damages. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, Turkey's presidential election is fast approaching, and the parties opposing 20-year incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan have finally picked the person to challenge him. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see who it is. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you for a long-form interview on Friday.